Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Robin Adamson, Director of Investment Management from our Glasgow office. I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about such delights as the Jackson Hole Symposium, inflation and the US debt ceiling. I am, thanks to the wonders of technology, recording this podcast from my rusty camper van deep in the wilds of Scotland as I hide from the coronavirus, while Ben is in the east wing of his stately home, think the set of downtown Abbey, just bigger. This recording takes place on Tuesday, the 31st of August. But before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, to kick us off, would you like to give us a brief review of recent market movements, please? Absolutely. Thank you, Robin. Uh, So looking back over August, August is traditionally a bit of a silly season. You tend to have a lot of people on holiday, not too many people or not as many people involved in markets, and that can sometimes lead to a few swings around. And certainly this August has really been characterised by quite a few sentiment sentiment effects driving markets. If we look at what actually happened, um, equities have been drifting again slightly upwards. Maybe this is equities climbing a little bit of a wall of worry, but the magnitudes in equities are pretty limited. US and Europe, as I look today, are up 3%, UK is up 2%. Emerging markets were a little rockier, actually exaggerating some of the the, the moves within the month. At one point, emerging markets were down as much as 4.5%. They did manage to to achieve a positive return by the end, up 0.6%. And in terms of sovereign bond yields, this is where things get a little bit more interesting. They've bounced around quite a lot. And what we've seen is the market's really heavily reacting um, to to a couple of data points and swinging around quite a lot. Bond yields that move in the opposite direction of prices. So bond yields rose when we got some good job numbers, but then they fell back uh, when uh, w- when some of the sentiment figures came out, only to ro- rise once again uh, around the time of, of Jack the Jackson Hole Symposium that you mentioned, some positive uh, sentiment coming around those. So overall, yields are up on the month. 10-year gilt yields are eight basis points at spot 0.64. 10-year US Treasuries up five basis points. They were last seen at 1.27. And in commodities, gold again, it made a round trip. It followed the sentiment around dipping uh, and then rallying, really finishing about where it started at $1,815 an ounce, whereas oil was a little bit lower. Still in the 70s, though, so Brent crude around $73 a barrel. And sterling was generally a bit weaker, uh, whilst the US dollar was generally stronger. And the key driver for all these things as I said, has been sentiment. I think it's really interesting how sharply markets uh, have been reacting in the very short term to some of the, these these numbers. 
The jobs numbers for August back at the start of the month, there's some good numbers. The non-farm payrolls in the US, uh, 943,000 jobs added compared to 870 expected. Some upward revisions to the previous month's numbers as well. Most importantly, unemployment in the US fell from 5.9% to 5.4%, which is much better than expected. That triggered a a lot of positivity, a lot of risk on sentiment. The sense that economic recovery was was taking hold and accelerating led to, to that wave of positivity. Then the week after, the University of Michigan, the report that carries out a very comprehensive uh, survey of consumers and is very closely watched, actually that index plummeted. It fell from 81.2 to 70.2 against no change being expected. That was a huge move. I mean, this number normally sits between about 80 and 100. In fact, this latest reading has been the worst. Uh, it's even worse than it was at the start of the pandemic. Pandemic. You've got to go all the way back to 2011, when we're still in the middle of global financial crisis fears, to see a sentiment index falling so sharply. Now, this is a very fickle index. Consumer sentiment does tend to swing around quite a lot. But clearly, some of the fears over the spread of the Delta variant but also, as we've talked before, the ending of some of these support programmes in the US, the enhanced unemployment benefits. Similar in the UK, we've got furlough starting to roll over. Some of the moratoria on evictions rolling over in the US as well. Some of the business continuity grants starting to be phased out. All of these fears have started to come together. So it has been quite volatile and the market's been reacting very significantly to a couple of relatively small data points. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate that. Um, next question for you. There remains the ongoing debate both in the markets and obviously amongst the members of the US Federal Reserve's Governing Council as to when to start the tapering of their asset purchase programme and how this impacts on their run inflation hot strategy. Following on from Fed Chair Powell's comments on Friday at Jackson Hole, three most obvious questions in my mind that spring from this topic are to be answered in no particular order, obviously, one, is the beginning of the taper now a foregone conclusion? Two, what will be the market reaction when the taper date is officially announced? And three, the Fed have been comfortable with their run-hot strategy for inflation and indeed have been stating that prior to Friday that they felt the current increase in inflation was transitory. Do you feel Chair Powell's recent statements marks a change in inflation think from the Fed? Well, thank you, Robin. And lots always to unpack when it comes to central bankers. They did have their big Jackson Hole get together when central bankers from around the world all gather in the US to talk about policy. And actually, you know, I, I mentioned at the top, the market started to move a little bit ar around the time of Jackson Hole. You go back a few months, we're expecting Jackson Hole to be this big announcement, big coordinated action. Actually, as always, in the weeks leading up to it, and particularly the days leading up to it, a lot of that enthusiasm had waned, and most people are expecting more of the same. And that's really cool what we got, a restatement of some of the current thinking, um, perhaps a few extra bits around the edge, but no big announcement. But it is a good opportunity to see what central bankers uh, are thinking. In terms of, of whether or not uh, the ending of QE is a foregone conclusion, well, look, essentially... Nothing's ever certain in markets, but I think you can have a high degree of confidence that, that tapering is on the cards and it's going to happen. I think, frankly, everyone accepts quantitative easing is an emergency policy response. Central banks want to scale it back at some point and get back to more conventional monetary policy, that is moving interest rates up and down. 
frankly, if, if you have to keep QE, QE in effect, something's gone so catastrophically wrong, it's actually probably a negative signal. It's also not a panacea. It's great in a crisis, but you do tend to get diminishing returns. The more you pump in, the less impact it has, and it can uh, can cause serious problems if it does become permanent. So I think it is still likely to get scaled back. Perhaps more importantly, though, a lot of the key unknowns out there uh, are around the timing and what the market's going to focus on. And here where is where I think we're starting to see some healthier debate. Actually, there's a lot of different views across most central banks. We tend to focus on the US Federal Reserve, because obviously the world's largest economy it has lots of impacts at a global level. And within that, I, I think it's it's very important to highlight most members of the, the, the committee speak with their own mind. They don't necessarily represent the committee. And that's why you'll see some of the hawks have already been saying, you know, we should we should be withdrawing QE now. Others are thinking in a couple of months' time. Still others at the more cautious end are willing to let it go a little bit further. And I think sometimes people can overreact. They see one Fed member saying we should hype, you know, we, we, we should uh, withdraw QE right now. Many people take that as a sign. That's what the whole committee thinks. That's not the case. They all speak for their own book. And that's why it's more interesting to listen to Jay Powell sometimes. He acts in a chair capacity. So he's reflecting more the balanced view of the committee. And I think that's important to highlight. The current outlook hasn't changed massively. We've been saying consistently, I think, throughout 2021, we do expect some movement towards the back end of this year, some withdrawal of QE. I think that's very much on track. Um, you recall back in January, there was some so, some loose lips at the Fed suggesting tapering might be on the cards, and that caused a bit of a spooking. Then they very much shut all that talk down. But since the summer, that's been back on the cards. It's always been bubbling under the surface. So the current outlook, we're likely to see an announcement towards the, the back end of this year. Maybe QE will tapering will start either the end of this year or early next year. And there's some sense maybe that that, that QE uh, will be fully tapered by the, the, the back end of 2022. And that's important because the, the, the Fed and others have clearly indicated they want to end the quantitative easing program before they start using using interest rates as their main mechanism. And what they really need to have a bit of clear, clear water between ending QE and that then gives them scope to start increasing interest rates. So until they've finished with QE, QE tapering, they can't really start to, to use use interest rates. So that's that's perhaps a key point. Maybe the other thing to highlight as well that people often forget, um, just because you end QE doesn't mean uh, it stops having an effect. And I think you know, a couple of years ago, we were already talking, or we were talking about quantitative tightening. That is the actual withdrawal of QE. And because quantitative easing is pumping money into the system, often through the purchase of government bonds and, and a few other securities, there's then a, a big lump on central bank's balance sheets that at some point needs to, to, to get withdrawn. So rather than saying, right, that's it, it's over, there's actually a future state where you need to unwind that. It's a lot like blowing up a balloon. You blow up a balloon, it gets bigger and bigger. The point at which you stop blowing up, that's basically the tapering of QE. They've stopped pumping more money in, but at some point they need to deflate those balance sheets, and that's a future consideration. And actually what tends to happen once you have these government bonds on the balance sheet, as they mature and you get cash inflows for those maturing bonds, those then reinvested. So a lot of that balance sheet gets reinvested and that's how it still has an impact. So simply ending QE is, isn't the end of, of the entire program, but it does sort of pause 
more money going in. So there's still lots of things to think of, um, perhaps within that. And finally, your point on the market reaction. Um, it's very hard to know exactly what will happen in advance, but I can say um, I, I think it's a lot is going to depend on how well the, the Fed can position this tapering along with other central banks. And what the Fed is doing a, a very careful job of managing at the moment is trying to get across this communication line that withdrawing QE, which effectively is, is uh, a form of marginal monetary policy tightening, withdrawing QE into strength is a good sign. You're saying the economy is growing. It can now stand at its own two feet. A more normalised interest rate and monetary policy environment is appropriate. And that's what they're trying really hard to get across. What they don't want to do is get the message that we have to increase interest rates. We have to withdraw QE because inflation is starting to get out of hand. And that's really the, the, the message they're trying to get across. I mean, I actually don't think a, a moderate hike in interest rates is particularly significant. We're talking about ending QE and hiking rates a lot at the moment. But if you look at the Fed's own projections, all they're talking about is moving from a range of 0 to 0.25% now to half a percent to three quarters of a percent at the back end of 2023. Now, these forecasts are invariably wrong. It's more a signal for the direction. Um, but, you know, going off extreme emergency lows to still, still supportive monetary policy, if the economy cannot tolerate that, then we have bigger problems to, bigger problems to deal with, I'd say. And inflation? Well, inflation, uh, I, I think we are very much in the camp that it is transitory. I think there's a few indicators that suggest that. But transitory doesn't just mean 2020 into 2021. You get some base effect, a low number last year compared to a normalised number this year. But transitory effects to me means there's probably a few things in the system that, that will maybe keep inflation elevated for a short period of time. Importantly, I don't think it's going to persist um, year on year. And that's is that feedback that I think you've most got to worry about. As we look at it, the, the inflation we've got thus far, obviously, we've had very high numbers. But what's driving that are some very specific elements just for, for COVID, particularly in the US. The, the elements driving it, what we call uh, sort of idiosyncratic COVID elements, that includes vehicle cost, energy, restaurants, hotels, airfares. A lot of that is just simple economics of scarcity. You've had supply shocks, and when you have a significantly reduced supply, obviously, that tends to um, push up prices in the short term. But if you look at everything else, what we consider underlying uh, inflationary drivers, those have actually been softening over the last 12 months. So it's important to sort of highlight that. And if you consider problematic inflation is more, more is generally considered to be a broad general rise uh, in all prices. And that's not what we're seeing at the moment. So, I mean, what, what we're tending to think of at the moment, some of these idiosyncratic effects are pushing the headline rate up. We think it will probably drop back. The important messaging we're trying to get across, we think it's going to drop back, but to a higher level than it has been in the past. It'll probably, in our mind, likely sit uh, possibly slightly above the 2% target. That's entirely tolerable. That's in line with what central banks have indicated that they're willing to tolerate, talking about average inflation targeting, symmetrical targets. So we think inflation is going to, to drop, but to, to a higher level than, than, than it has been historically, um, because I think a lot of, as the economy gets back online, as these supply bottlenecks resolve, there's some of these, these short term factors 
should move through. Now, that said, that's our base case. We do keep a very close eye on inflation, though. And in particular, we have uh, a watching brief. So every, every week and every month, the team um, here look very closely at some metrics. We try and see what would it take to change our minds? What are those metrics? And we keep a close eye on them. And things that, we, that we're looking at that would perhaps change that view if we do see a broadening out of sectors driving inflation, rather than being a few isolated to COVID, we did see it becoming more general and a more general rise in, in, in prices, then that broadening of the sectors would, would be a warning signal to us. Other factors slack in the economy. We saw unemployment dropping to, to very low levels or money supply continuing to increase, then that would perhaps give us a reason to reconsider and finally, it's about those feedback loops. If we see higher prices leading to higher wages, businesses reporting forward-looking expectations of increasing employment costs and inflation becoming a problem. If we start to see that feedback loop, that would also give us pause for thought. So our base case, all of these factors, base effects, transitory idiosyncratic factors are likely to fade. But we have also got a very clear watching brief on what we're keeping an eye on that may cause us to change our mind if we see those pass. That's great. Thank you very much for that very comprehensive answer to a very long question. Um, do you think the upcoming US debt ceiling debate will slow down any likely trillion dollar infrastructure spending programme in the US? I, I think US debt ceiling is, is back in focus. It will probably take a few more weeks or a month or so until we can see whether or not they're, they're really going to seriously pick a fight on the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is always an arbitrary political issue. It, it's a slight oddity of the way the US system works, that the government will vote on the spending bill or vote on a bill that includes expenditure once, and then they'll go back to decide again if they actually want to borrow to, to fund that. And, and it's always a political hot potato. It's decided by the government itself. Now, just because the, one, or the US government hits the debt ceiling, there are several mechanisms they can use to extend it. So actually, they can continue to function well into, into the autumn. Um, currently, it's unclear. I think many politicians are sensitive to the fact that the tolerance of the electorate towards political gamesmanship is never particularly high to start with. It's particularly low given uh, the, the, the COVID-19 backdrop. So it's not clear they'd necessarily be, be willing to pick that battle. But in terms of the infrastructure bill, it's worth remembering $1 trillion has already been approved in a bipartisan approach. The scope now is for this $3.5 trillion package, and that's what's really going through at the moment. Um, there's some support, uh, patchy on both sides. Actually, it's some of the more conservatively-minded Democrats uh, that, that are some of the problems, problems as well, particularly given how, how slim the majority uh, the Democrats have and the requirements for, for larger majorities to get some of the these points through. So I think we'll have to wait for a few more weeks to see if if the debt ceiling is going to be made a big political issue and if some of the Republicans start threatening to push towards a shutdown. I don't think it'll have the biggest impact on, on the infrastructure bill. Those challenges are almost more within the Democratic Party and just trying to bring over some some Republicans. But it's worth remembering all of these bills are for a, a much longer term, a multi-year spending package. So I think the timing of these packages is always thought to be extended. It just so happens at the moment uh, there, there's this US debt ceiling issue, which is another tool that one party can lever um, in the political battle. But, you know, I think this is just 
one point in what's likely to be quite an extended negotiation period because this is going to be a much longer term multi-year package. Great stuff, thank you. So with the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 flirting with their all-time highs and bearing in mind your previous comments, what are your views on asset allocation, especially at a micro, at a macro level? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as always, when you're looking at asset allocation, you need to consider your, your stock picking, so some of the bottom-up elements as well as the top-down. Looking purely at the top-down, though, I think you're, you're right, a lot of markets are hitting all-time highs, but equities tend to be upward marching over the long term. Of course, they are risky assets, but they tend they have a, a, a trend that tends to move higher. I think that makes sense. It makes less sense to me, uh, and, and, and I thought we think we've talked about um, a couple of times last year or, or the year before. When it comes to equity markets, looking at the price level is perhaps less useful than looking at the valuation level, because um, obviously it's worth comparing a price to something like earnings, price to earnings, it's a very common measure, price to cash flow, price to sales. And in that area, the US is still looking pretty expensive, so there's reasons to be a little bit wary. Actually, other markets um, are not looking quite so stretched. But overall, equities do still look attractive, not necessarily if you compare them to their own history, but if you compare them to something like um, government bonds then they do have some attraction. It's worth remembering as well, over the long term, equities probably have uh, the, the most reasonable chance of achieving decent real returns. Companies can grow their earnings. They can deploy all sorts of mechanisms to grow their profits over the long term through innovation, uh, improvements in, uh, in technology, improvements in productivity. Companies can grow their earnings, and that's what pushes up the price. So I think if you look in the long term, Equity, to me, still look a, a relatively attractive place to be. Some of the short-term market signals are suggesting maybe there's some undulations uh, in the near term, but I think it's nigh on impossible to call those. So I'd say look through some of that short-term noise and focus on the long term. The US looks expensive. Uh, Non-US, particularly developed market, non-US um, in the medium term could be marginally more attractive. Though, again, you've got to be really careful on the stocks that you're picking, the sectors you're exposed to. You are making a bit of a judgment call on some of the more cyclical names, particularly in uh, in the likes of, of the UK and Europe. But on a valuation basis, they, they, they may be due a little bit of catch up. I think in terms of asset allocation, the area I'm most cautious in is, is fixed income. Core fixed income, most people's benchmarks are, are government bonds, particularly US and UK. And there, they, they look particularly susceptible either to, to rising real rates or potentially any movement higher, even marginally higher in inflation expectation. They tend to get magnified uh, in, uh, in the price returns on, say, a 10-year bond. So within fixed income, there are things that we can do and certainly in the strategies that, that we look after. Um, it's about keeping duration low, so that's the, how long these, these these bonds take to mature. You keep that relatively short. You take a little bit more in terms of corporate credit, so that's lending to corporations rather than governments, and perhaps using some, some inflation linking. So there are things you can do in there, but the core exposure, I think, is relatively unattractive. And just as those are unattractive, um, parts of the alternatives market, which is sometimes used uh, in part to substitute for fixed income. There's some attractive points in there. I think gold still has a useful function in portfolios. Some other alternatives, high quality absolute return vehicles, you can sort of churn out uh, a steady return regardless of the economic 
a market backdrop. Those can be attractive as well. Also, some of the infrastructure funds, um, real assets like that. So there's a lot you can do. Um, equities, I think, still look relatively positive, though they are risky. Um, so make sure you, you pay attention to your risk profile when constructing those. Fixed income is challenged, so you really need to be nuanced. And I think there's some attraction in some of those mainstream alternative asset classes too. Excellent. Finally, Ben, with a huge day approaching, what are your views on weddings? Are they a good thing to do? Or to quote Gareth in four weddings in your funeral, something that happens when two people are in love? You live together and then suddenly run out of conversation. Your thoughts, please. Uh, I, I, I'm very, I, I, well, I, I have a vested interest, so I have a natural conflict and a bias, but I'm certainly hoping for an extended bull run. Excellent. So to wrap up, I would like to thank Ben as ever for his insightful comments on the previous subject matter and also to wish him well on his impending marriage to the wonderful Chloe. We'll be back again soon with a new action-packed episode. If you've any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email to podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.